Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 130. I'm so honored to be joined today by Dan Grunfeld. A little bit about Dan. He's a former professional basketball player, an accomplished writer, and a proud graduate of Stanford University. Go Cardinal. That's my addition. An <laughs> academic All-American and all-conference basketball selection at Stanford. Dan played professionally for eight seasons in top leagues around the world, including in Germany, Spain, and Israel. His writing has been published more than 40 times in media outlets such as Sports Illustrated, the Jerusalem Post, and NBC News. Dan earned his MBA from the Stanford Graduate School of Business in 2017 and lives with his wife and son in the San Francisco Bay Area, where he works in venture capital. You may know him as the second most famous Stanford grad besides maybe Tiger Woods. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, I will switch the order, switch the order there. Dan, a pleasure to read your book, which we'll obviously be talking about a lot, and uh, just an honor to meet you and talk to you. How are you today? Doing well, Pete. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Like I said, really looking forward to it. We're, you got me by a couple years younger, but you know a lot of the same um, you know, references and illusions, and both with a great love for hoops. My hoops career ended in uh, senior high school or maybe intramural college. You played yeah. a little bit longer, but I love looking forward to talking hoops with you as well. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll talk a lot of basketball, but um, obviously, you're a very good writer. We're going to talk about your book in a little bit. Um, I'd love to know, in a family that seemed to be very connected to academics and learning, what um, what was your relationship with language? That could be the language, like, you know, you, your father grew up speaking Romanian and Hungarian, which I don't think you speak too much of, but just your relationship with languages, your relationship with words, and maybe even more specifically, like sports writing and sports reading were you were you a sports illustrated guy from the beginning like what kind of stuff were you reading and into yeah for sure i mean you know language is a theme in the book because my dad came to america not speaking the language mm -hmm. you know he spoke fluent hungarian romanian and italian not a word of english and i heard a lot of hungarian growing up so i've always been very aware that there are many languages and uh and so yeah that again that that's kind of reflected in the book i've always loved to read and write it's just a great, great love of mine. And I was such a committed basketball player and that was the family business. So people always kind of associated me with basketball. But my mom said, even from the time I was a little kid, Dan's going to be a writer. You know, she knew that I just loved it because I would come home from practice and write poems and stories and and all these other things. And so I definitely I loved reading sports books growing up. Matt Christopher, you know, when I was a kid. Oh, he was, man, I love it. I, yes. Oh, I, I would just read all the Matt Christopher books. But I kind of had eclectic taste, honestly, you know, and I would read Sports Illustrated. I would read real stories about sports, but I I'd, I'd just read all sorts of books. I just mm -hmm. love stories and storytelling. So mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, from the time I was little, it's just been a great love of mine. Huh. I wonder um, that's so cool. The Matt Christopher references, man, <laughs> brings me back. Yeah, I wonder how much of like the the immigrant mentality, which is probably you know should be plural. I mean, there's all kinds of different mentalities that go with being, in this case, the the son of of an immigrant. 
but like how much of the storytelling came from coming from an immigrant family i just think it it kind of made me understand the importance of stories because it's what you carry with you what is passed down you know in my family's case there's a big story there with the holocaust with immigration as you mentioned so yeah i just think the stakes kind of get bigger you know when when you grow up in a family where some really serious things happen some really great things happened and yeah the way we kind of transmit those to others is through stories right and in the book i want to say ends or maybe it's the second to the last chapter i think it's the ending it really you know really emotional just talking about the legacy you know passing on you know congratulations you're saying you have a, a second one born pretty recently but the mm -hmm. first one would kind of ended like kind of dedicated to your to your son just talking about legacy and you know passing down stories which is obviously one of the many strengths of this of your book which is so well done and the book of course having to give the title is is by the grace of the game i'd love to know just a little bit about i guess fast forwarding a lot about like where to, where, where should we get the book What's it been like since the book came out? I want to say it's been maybe, what, like October, November of last year? Yeah, it was late November of 2021. What, how about the whole just uh, experience with publishing the book? Yeah, so it's available where books are sold. Hey. Uh, so I would love people to, to grab a copy. I've been working on it for more than five years. You know, it's a true mm -hmm. labor of love, right? A year and a half of interviews to understand the whole story. Then eight months through my first draft iterating editing you know getting an agent getting a publisher all mm -hmm. those things i wrote this book from the heart you know usually for a nonfiction book like this you put a proposal together you get an agent you sell that proposal then you write it i i did it backwards and mm -hmm. a professor i was working with an english professor at stanford who i was working with gave me that advice because he said you can write and the story means the world to you write your book write this story uh. the way you want to and then figure it out and i did that I just wrote it from the heart and then I figured the rest out later. Mm. Uh, yeah, like it came out in November 2021, paperback printing six months early. You know, I was on okay. Good Morning America and the NBA oh. on TNT. You know, I heard Shaquille O'Neal and Charles Barkley talking about my book. And so oh, man. It, there's been so many cool things. And, you know, Wolf Blitzer from CNN interviewed uh -huh. me, my dad and my grandmother about the story for the Holocaust oh. Museum. Right. So the the response has been fantastic. And for me that's just so meaningful because i just tell a really authentic human story about you know my grandparents surviving the holocaust right my dad coming to america as an immigrant suffering more tragedy here in the united states and then finding basketball right and then myself as a third generation also you know being a basketball player and, and being very motivated but for different reasons right mm. holding this very big history so the book has meant the world to me the response to it has been so heartening and i'm just really grateful oh my gosh wow would we be able to find the video of uh, like inside the M NBA? Go on YouTube potentially. I don't okay. know. I don't okay. know if it's still out there, but it was it was awesome for for Holocaust Remembrance Day, for you and Mashoa. Yeah. So okay. uh, after a game, Ernie Johnson, Kenny Smith, Charles Barkley, Shaq. Uh, I was interviewed by one of the TNT correspondents, and then they kind of discussed the story. And Shaq talked about going to Dachau, you know, one of the camps in wow. in, in Europe. And so, yeah, just you know that that type of platform is uh -huh. so great because it just spreads the message not only of my book but of stories like this right because sure. here's something really important i'll tell you my grandmother who is the star of our family and the uh -huh. star of our story and you read the book right survived the holocaust is a hero she turned 97 years old a few weeks ago hey. you know i just talked to her a few hours ago and so her incredible story and, and frankly her incredible spirit to be highlighted for millions of people on tnt like that uh -huh. right that that's why you do it right mm -hmm. so i'm just i'm so grateful for that as good as it gets, right? Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh, wow. You had the the foreword written by Ray Allen. Talk, uh, talk a little bit about the connection there. 
Yeah, Ray Allen was recently named one of the top 75 players in NBA history, right? So he, he's an icon. You know, he starred alongside Denzel Washington and he got game, right? So <laughs> yeah. this is, you know, Ray can attach himself to any project. And uh, I happen to have a relationship with Ray because my dad was the general manager of the Milwaukee Bucks when Ray was the star right. shooting guard of the team. Yeah. I, at the time, was an up-and-coming high school player. I was a shooting guard myself. Ray was always very good to me. We didn't know at the time, we being my family, that Ray's mission and passion was to educate people on the Holocaust. He had seen Schindler's List in, in college and was moved by the story. President Obama would eventually name him to the board of the Holocaust Museum in 2016. That's how, mm. that's how active he's been. Similarly, he didn't know that my dad was the only player in NBA history whose parents survived the Holocaust, right? So uh, Ray had been to our house. We'd spent a lot of time together. He didn't know. And so uh, once I wrote the book and I connected with him and I just told him, hey, man, my dad, this is his background. This is my family story. I told him about the book and asked him if he'd you know, lend his support and he didn't hesitate. And I, when I was in high school, I had Ray's jersey, number 34 for the Milwaukee Bucks, hanging uh -huh. on my, in the wall in my bedroom. And I always tell people, as much as I looked up to him and admired him then, I look up to him and admire him more now for the type of person he is. That's that's saying some, right? Like you said, he's top he's top seventy five in the NBA, but he's a better guy than he is a player. Even you know? he truly is. You know, he he doesn't talk to talk; he walks the walk. I mean, huh. every time Ray's teams in the NBA played in Washington D.C., he'd take teammates to the Holocaust Museum. Right. And I've talked to some of those teammates from the Boston Celtics who uh -huh. who told me, yeah, I went to the museum with Ray. It was life changing because it is a life changing experience once you kind of you sit with that reality of th that this happened. You know, I don't think you walk out of the museum the same person you walk in, right? And that's for sure. Ray has been to Auschwitz. So for so many reasons, he's someone I look up to and his, his forward, I was gonna say, read the book, because it's a good book. <laughs> Self is worth it, because I mean, it's so moving. And it's so real and it raised raised one of a kind, right? Oh, man. So cool. So cool. He was um, much less important things. Basketball wise, he was people kind of forget, right? He was more of like an attack the basket kind of guy in his early career, right? 100%. He was such a good shooter in his later career when he played with the yeah. Brom, you know, with the Heat and with the Boston uh, Celtics. But when he was a young player, he was he was an attacker, like you said, athletic, would dunk on you, get out and transition. You know, he had really good legs, like he was right. bouncy. So he played for 18 seasons. So, you, you know, those last several years when sure. he was still very effective, he was just a knockdown shooter. Yes, you know, was. he was the all-time leader in three-point field goals made up until this past year where Steph Curry broke the record. So right. such a prolific shooter. But, yeah, you forget he was just – he was an attacker and, and a really athletic guy. Right. Going, going back uh, a, a bit. So, you know, I, I know your father, you know, as the executive for the Knicks, being when I grew up and everything like that. What was that like being – the son of somebody, I mean, in New York City, like you, you do say really well in the book, is, is the mecca of basketball, Madison mm -hmm. Square Garden. You know, he played for the Knicks for a couple of years. He's from New York, or he grew up, you know, a lot of his life in New York. What was that like? I mean, were you able to, like, enjoy watching the Knicks? Were you, like, a fan fan, or were you always watching it with, like, another, you know, a different perspective, thinking, like, oh, man, like, what a, what a great pickup that was. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, both, honestly. Like, I was diehard fan, as you know from okay. the book. You know, I... I had the players faces on the ceiling of my bedroom, right? I would, I nailed like pictures of their faces, but all over my wall, I had posters and everything like that. So I loved the Knicks, love watching the team, but there's another side to it. When my dad is a general manager, there's pressure and there is that analysis and evaluation, you know, and I also had an inside view into what was really going on. So I would know 
you know, what, what trades are they thinking about? Who do they like in the draft? And so right. I looked at it with this view that most, you know, 10 or 12 year old kids don't look at it, uh-huh. but at, in my heart and at my core, I was just a diehard Knicks fan. Yeah. Who was, who was your favorite player, Knicks or otherwise? Did you have a favorite player or a couple? Yeah. It, growing up, it was John Starks. Okay. Yep. Shooting guard, played yeah. with so much hard underdog. You know, he uh-huh. went to four colleges in Oklahoma, was bagging groceries, groceries at uh-huh. a Piggly Wiggly before he got, you yeah, know, right, right, discovered. Right, right. So, and he, he, he fit with New York City. He just played with passion and so much emotion. And I was lucky that I knew him. I would just see him every weekend. I, I'd practice and I'd see him in the locker room after games. I knew John, loved him. And Alan Houston came to the team. I loved Alan. He was a real, a gentleman, also a shooting guard. He he happened to break my dad's scoring record at the University of Tennessee. Oh, so my right. dad was the all-time leading scorer at Tennessee for like 15, 20 years. I always knew that growing up. But then Alan Houston broke his record. So when I was growing up, I knew him as like, oh, the guy who broke my dad's record. But then my dad signed him and he was, you know, great person, amazing player, and still a very good friend of mine to this day. Uh, yeah, that uh, I, I think I was thinking of that John Starks lefty dunk. Right? Incredible over the over the bulls. Yeah. Iconic. One of the all-time great moments. He like like spun out, right? He he spun right. out, man. Well, yeah. Let's let's get into talking about the book. By the grace of the game, the complete title is. Give me the complete title, please. The Holocaust, a basketball legacy, and an unprecedented American dream. So you know that that semicolon there by the grace of the game, and then all the the other details of it, and it talks about so much. And I'm sure the the seeds of the book were not just like a you know one day thing. Like oh, I thought of, like I'm sure it was a, a work in progress. But what were the seeds for the book? What made you decide like I want to put this down on paper? As I mentioned, I always love to write and to tell stories. Yeah. And this is this is the big one. I grew up understanding the profound impact that basketball had, had on my life. It was so mm-hmm. much bigger than just a game, you know, for my dad to come to America, bullied because he didn't speak the language. As you know, from the book, he tragically lost his older brother to leukemia not long after arrival. And my grandparents were Holocaust survivors, right? And, and it was basketball that gave us a new life in America. I just always felt how powerful that was. I retired from my own professional basketball career in 2014 and I went to business school and I had some space to explore some other interests. And I remember talking to my wife about it and saying, you know, I got to write this. This is, I have to. And eventually it became time. You know, and I, I started in earnest, you know, with the, the research, just the whole process. Uh, but I just felt that it meant the world to me, but I also felt that it's, it's a universal and relatable story. We can, you know, even though, no one has this particular version of it because my dad is literally the only athlete with this background. His parents are Holocaust survivors, but the themes of survival, of perseverance, of family, of legacy, of love, right? These are, these are universal. And so I thought that the story could resonate. I just wrote it from the heart and I'm so pleased that it has resonated in the way it has. Well, yeah, you were just saying a few minutes ago about all the interviews you did. And I think you wrote about them, the acknowledgements and I was surprised is not the word, but just like, wow, so impressed by how many interviews you did. How many of them were like formal or how many of them were just like you sitting around with grandma and, you know, just kind of talking and, and seeing what she had to say? So they were they were both. And I'll tell you why, because I wanted to create a very safe space to have honest conversation. And you read the book, you know, the depth of detail. Mm-hmm. I was able to get there because 
I didn't put expectations on the conversations. I just wanted to have human conversations with people. But so I, I did over hundreds of hours of interviews with both my dad and my grandmother. Mm. That, that's how much, you know, that's how long we took just talking through all these themes. So it was casual. It was loving. Sometimes it was hard. Sometimes it was happy. But I recorded the the conversations, I transcribed them. So it, there was this other side to it where it was very surgical on my part, but I, but I did create that safe space. And yeah, it wasn't only my dad and my grandma. I talked to family members all over the world, you know, yes. Budapest and Israel and every, every, every person that I could find that had a morsel or a nugget of this big story, mm -hmm. I talked to that person. And, and that's why the book kind of has the depth that it does. Definitely. And so the book starts off with the introduction. It talks about how now, please, please tell me, is it, is it on you and on you, yep, on, on you, you, on you, your, your beloved grandmother, who is obviously, I say great character. She's obviously a real person, but what, a, what an incredible character, what an incredible person. The introduction is about how her food made you sick, but not because it was so bad because it was so good. Yeah. Tell us about yeah. it. A bit. Yeah. Listen, I, and you know, food, I, I talk about my grandma's food a lot throughout the book and it's food in my family. It's a vessel of love. You know, my grandmother's this incredible cook. She she cooks the, these traditional Hungarian meals. They're the same dishes that her mother made for their family before her parents were killed in Auschwitz and, and many of her siblings as well. So food is very, very important in our family. Mm -hmm. I just love my grandma's cooking. And so there have been more than a few occasions when I where I, I just couldn't stop eating it. And I would tell my I tell my wife once we got together, right, like, say, I'm going down a bad road here. And she says, you should stop eating as I, I can't, I'm just going to keep going. And we'll see what happens. <laughs> it hasn't all, you know, it's always been good, because the food's amazing. But I have eaten myself sick on more times than I've, uh, yes. that I can admit. <laughs> I, I thought of when you when, especially with your grandma living in the Bay Area, I thought of my grandma was able to go to college in the same city where she lives. And Great, incredible Italian cook, right? And I think about how she was taught by her, you know, like you talk about the legacy of generations. And probably the greatest meal I ever had was with her Italian relatives in Italy. Oof. Like you said, just made you sick, like sick. Yeah. I was absolutely <laughs> Can't sick. Stop. I'm, like, I'm not going to stop eating. Right. You got it. And well, this was one of many occasions in the book where you got me going down the, the Wikipedia rabbit hole and YouTube is I was looking up some of the foods that grandma cooked in. Yeah. Uh, Tell me the name again of the, it's cut like a chicken, like a breaded chicken cut. Rontatouche. Yes. <laughs> and the, uh, the soup. Uh, yeah. The, like a purple, like a beet soup. So Mejlevesh, it's That's sour cherry soup. Sour cherry, pardon me. It yes. is. Oh, I love it so much. And yeah. it sounds like, I, it's funny because my grandmother would cook us big meals on the weekends. Uh -huh. And then she would send us home with so much. So I would bring that stuff to work. And people would say, what is that? It's like a pink soup. And I would tell them and they, they would think it was gross. And I'd say, great, more for me. Like, yeah, you don't have right. to have any, you know, but right. it's, yeah, it's just the best. <laughs> you, you move on to talk about um, basketball is obviously the connector with your father, who, um, but it was also so cool that he, you wrote about how he would brag more about your grades than your athletic exploits, of which there are many. Yeah, you know, he didn't. And I think that the point of that, of, of relaying that information is that my dad didn't put pressure on me. And, and as you know, from the book, I sure put enough of it on myself. Mm -hmm. But I, my parent, neither my parents forced me to be a basketball player to do what my dad did. I always wanted to do that. Mm -hmm. But you know, my dad wouldn't lead with, oh, Dan had 25 points or, or anything like that. He would say, Dan got straight A's, you know, and mm. he would always and my sister as well. My sister is older than me. It was a great example in the classroom. But I think that he, yeah, he was just always proud of that and really always hard, you know, kind of 
focused on that for us. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, obviously it was such an important name. I mean, your father played, what was it, nine seasons in the nine NBA? Nine seasons in the NBA. Yep. And it was a great executive and, and all that. And obviously an incredible story. I think of like, like a Michael Jordan Jr. or something like, literally cannot be better than your dad, Michael Jordan. Yeah. Jr. Like cannot, right? And you, you had, you know, different pressures, but you talked about how you put the pressure on yourself that it was like a physical manifestation, like a, like a tick almost, right? Yeah, I did. I, I had a nervous tick in my eye as a youngster, which came back when I was in college. I think uh, I, I, I knew very early that there was something I wanted so bad, right? Which was to be a good basketball player and to make it as a basketball player. And this whole story that I wrote tells why, right? It was more than a game. I knew that my grandmother had lost her family. I knew that my dad had lost his brother and my grandparents lost their son. And But it was basketball that shined its light on our family. It just meant so much to me. And and I'm a sensitive person. I, I just put so much pressure on myself. And listen, some pressure is good, you know, because it certainly drove me to work hard, to compete really hard. But mm. I, I definitely felt too much of it at certain times in, in my life, in my career, where it, it hindered my performance. And definitely when I was a little kid and then later on when I was playing at Stanford and then professionally as well, it was just a, a lifetime journey, right, to be mm-hmm. kind of at peace and balance while playing. Hmm. You write about your grandmother on you with the you know living rural in a rural life it, with a big family she loved her cherry trees life was was idyllic you know for so many kids and that of course that you know is, is then buffeted by the camps as i mean how can you possibly ever even describe the 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 evil the tragedies of the camps right but i was reminded so much i was i was wondering about any links if you've read like night by ellie wiesel of course Right. I mean, Transylvania, you know, Siget, the, the same yep. idea you talk about with your family, where it's back and forth between Romania and Hungary, yep. right? And the languages. And and I was I was struck by that. I mean, I've I've taught that book in my class probably 12, 10 years, right? And just the idea that like, how can you possibly fathom so much evil that was about to come? Like it's right? Yeah, you, you can't. It, it, it quite literally is unfathomable. And you know, so in the book. I very intentionally described my grandmother's idyllic childhood, right? Uh-huh. Ten, one of 10 siblings in an Orthodox Jewish household, two loving parents. She always still talks about her house being filled with love and laughter, and they didn't have technology or running water, but sure. they had family and they had really nice lives. And what happened in the Holocaust, we know the numbers, 6 million Jews, millions more, but they weren't just numbers. They were they were human beings, you know, who, who lived lives of purpose. And so I wanted to describe what life was like prior and then also describe what happened. And I wanted to be very honest about that. And, mm-hmm. you know, from the book, I talk about what happened to my family in Auschwitz, yeah. you know, and, and, was, and I was able to recreate a likely scenario based off of not only books like Night by Elie Wiesel, but others, you know, and other sources. Mm-hmm. And so it's, uh, listen, we have to know what's at stake when people aren't treated fairly, when there's injustice, intolerance, hatred, because there still are those things in the world today. We see what's happening to people around the world. And so it was important to me to just be very honest about what my family went through. And to your point, it's unfathomable. Right. You talk about the the Holocaust Museum. I have not had the chance, but I've been to the Museum of Tolerance in LA a few times. And that's like you talk about the the personal touch they put on it where I haven't been in years, but, you know, they would give you like a card, like a library card and it had a person's, a real person mm-hmm. who was in the camps. And as you go through three or four times, you, you know, you put it in the card reader and it tells you, and, you know, I mean, there are people grown, you know, people crying at the end because out of happiness, because the person did survive or didn't. And like you said, there's just nothing like making it personal and telling the stories. Cause like you said, the numbers are just, 
absolutely unfathomable. Without a doubt. And so my book without definitely personalizes a bit of that journey. You get yes. to know my grandmother and her loved ones, but particularly my grandma. Like I, I talk to groups of youngsters all the time about this book. And I asked how many of you know a Holocaust survivor? And not a lot of hands go up often. And I said, well, read my book and you'll know one. You know, you'll get to know the human being that survived, that risked her life to save others. And so for all those reasons, these stories like this are so important. It's our obligation to tell them and to continue to pass them down. Exactly. Important, right? I mean, as as they get older and, you know, I know there's all kinds of projects about audio tapes and recordings, mm -hmm. but, you know, obviously with Never Again being the, the refrain there's there's that need to to record those stories tell me about the the silver spoon or the spoon that i mean there's legacies and there's very like uh, what's the word i'm looking for like very tangible legacies yeah right yeah so it's funny you say silver right because silver spoons is also something that in the book is kind of a symbol because i grew up as like a silver spoon kid where my dad was an nba player and then the general manager of the knicks uh, this was a, an old metallic spoon okay. but it's the most important spoon that i have and so when my grandmother survived and she got back home she didn't know what had happened to her family and you know she would learn that five siblings and both parents were killed but when she got back to her house that that happy home that we were talking about filled with love and laughter it was empty it was looted you know my great-grandfather was a landowner he had crops and he had animals they were all gone all decimated mm -hmm. And my grandmother's walking around her house disoriented, right? Because think about, imagine that sensation of coming back and seeing that. Mm -hmm. And there was nothing left. And in the back of one of the drawers in the kitchen, she saw an, a metallic serving spoon that my great-grandmother used for to serve milk because they were kosher, right? So they had the milk yeah. and then the meat. And my grandmother grabbed it out and held it to her heart. It was all that was left pretty much. And so my grandma held, kept that in her possession for 75 years and she gifted it to me and I keep it in my bedside drawer, you know, not, not far from where I sleep. And so wow. it, it's so, it's such an important keepsake. It means, you know, it means so much and it's very, very symbolic. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yes. silver spoon idea you know you talk about i wonder how much of that you think was was self-perpetuated or self-imposed you know that you kind of felt like you had to prove people wrong because you were the son yeah you know, i'm gonna make my own name and how much of that did you really get from like comments or things that people would say yeah i, I think they're both true i, I for sure it was self-perpetuating and you know you project and you uh, you know you e extrapolate things and so i did i did that to myself a lot but there were real real instances of feeling judged or left out whatever it was right and so it is hard when you grow up and your dad is well known he's had success in the thing that you're trying to do people are cruel and i definitely did face you know some tension around that but it, many a lot of it was self kind of self-induced as well so i think it was both so, so the book, I mean, for the most part, the book is, you know, kind of one chapter about like, let's say the old days with your grandma and then the other with, you know, your, your career. And so, you know, I mean, it's, they're juxtaposed, I guess, if you will, right. You're writing about your time in high school and then going to college, you know, so awesome. You're close to grandma. And am I correct that you scored 
45 points in 32 minutes. That was maybe not at Stanford. That was maybe in when you were being scouted. 45 points in 32 minutes? Yeah, that was in high school. So that was AAU basketball. When I was, yeah, listen, yeah, it was, I mean, it was the best game I ever played. Uh, I was one of Stanford's top recruits, and that's where I wanted to go. They hadn't offered me a scholarship, and I kind of had one last chance to get it done right. to be close to my grandmother. And the first game of the biggest tournament of the summer, I had 45 points. And yeah, there, you played eight minute quarters back then. And so I, there was something cosmic about that. You know, it was, and again, by the grace of the game. You know, the, the power of basketball in my family. I mean, this, I, it was just one of those special, special things that happened. Oh, my gosh. And, and so I believe like the next chapter was, you know, was as, as tragic as it gets and talking about harrowing scenes from Budapest. That was another thing that, you know, about Elie Wiesel's book and, and yours as well. Like, man, it was so late in the war, right? Where things were, yes. things seemed to be like, ah, oh, you know, they, they heard kind of rumors, but, they, you know, in some ways their lives were not that affected. And it was like, man, because it wasn't that 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 far before um, that long before the war was over, but you know, it doesn't change the amount of tragedy that happened there. You know, the ghettos in the in the true sense of the word, right? Um, yeah, but, and as you know, my grandmother was in the Budapest ghetto, and it was 1944. Right. It was at the end of the war, right? And so, and yeah, my my family was deported to Auschwitz in 44. Right, because I mean, and they talk about the Holocaust is lasting from like thirty-three to forty-five and different, you know, different levels. Like, oh my gosh, the very, very end. There, there's the, you know, the most horrific humans to ever walk the earth, like Eichmann, who you write about. Um, and then there's also Wallenberg, right? Who was who was a hero? Who was the Swedish businessman? Tell me a little bit about his um, his connection with your grandma. Well, right, because Adolf Eichmann is one of the most notorious Nazis, and and both Eichmann and Wallenberg were in Budapest at the end of the war. Right. And so that and so it kind of inter intersects with my grandmother's journey because my grandmother was on the run in Budapest. You know, she was visiting an older sister when the Nazis invaded, and so she had a chance to survive. She, the first way she survived was she got a something called a Schutz Pass, which was issued by Raoul Wallenberg, mm -hmm. uh, and so it's basically a protective passport that gave Jews a level of security for some time. And my grandma got one for herself, but she also risked her life to get 17 passes for other people. Mm -hmm. So I would say my grandma's not only my hero, she's also a hero. And it's the yes. truth. Uh, eventually that that Schutz Pass was no longer recognized. My grandmother was captured by the Nazis. She was put in the Budapest ghetto. Uh, she reunited with a brother there and at the end of the war they the nazis stayed out of the ghetto right jews kind of admit their daily life and at the end of the war my grandmother and her brother saw 20 nazis enter the ghetto with machine guns over their shoulders and word quickly spread that they were there to kill the remaining eighty thousand jews right think about that eighty thousand. my grandma and her brother raced up the steps of the building that they were sleeping in they found a small attic space where they hid my grandma describes that there was room for about four or five people. There were like a dozen packed in there, you know, fighting for their lives. And they waited for 10 minutes and 20 minutes and then an hour and nothing happened. And eventually they checked and the Nazis had retreated and the ghetto was was liberated not long after and they were free to go. And that was 1945. 40 years later, 1985, a movie was made about Raul Wallenberg's life where Richard Chamberlain played Wallenberg. And it was in that movie that my grandmother saw Wallenberg learned of an order to exterminate the Jews in the ghetto, an order from Adolf Eichmann. And it was Wallenberg who raced to the gates of the ghetto, confronted the general and, and told him, let these people go. You'll be a murderer. They're innocent. And he talked the general out of the massacre. And so it took my grandma 40 years to learn that Wallenberg saved her life twice. So he, I, I tell when I talk to groups of students and young people, I say, you know, heroes can look different. Google Raoul Wallenberg, and you, you'll see that that's one 
one version of a true hero. Mm, wow. Amazing, amazing stories. You, um, you write about as the book goes on into your success at Stanford, you know, there was definitely some anxieties, you know, and you started off, you know, averaging three, four points a game, but you really, really came into your own, but that's, there's a chapter in there about the 1936 Olympics. And like I talked about with the, with the uh, rabbit holes and stuff, right? Like I knew a lot of the names, you know, Dolph Shays, et cetera, from the, from the original NBA or the early NBA, but just kind of looking at all the books have been written and all the like, wow, like how big of a part Jewish people played in early NBA. So many star players, right? That's right. Yeah. And I, as I write in the book, the first NBA game was played by the New York Knicks and the Toronto Huskies and all five members of the Knicks starting five were Jewish. Right. Right. And then, of you know, of course, the 1936 Olympics where you write about, you know, the Nazis took away all the signs and mm -hmm. you know, tried to you know, clean everything up and no anti-Semitism showing on, you know, and all of that. And then of course your, your dad down the road played in the Olympics for the United States, which is so awesome. L Lutzi, is that how you pronounce your uncle's name? Lutzi. Lutzi is obviously an incredibly uh, sad story. And that's one that you talk about that still, you know, in, with your family, you have his Americanized middle name. Correct. Leslie. Oh my gosh. What a, what a great legacy. Um, so, you know, there's part of the book is about your father growing up in Romania and the communist time there's of course the specter to say the least of the holocaust had only been a few years earlier and then uh let's see as my king was that what your dad would call him what what my dad called his older brother in hungarian uh -huh. translates to english as my king you know my uh -huh. uncle was eight years older than him so he okay. he was his hero he looked up to him so much the next chapter then is more about your your success and you you know really trying to go from a a good player at a really high level school to a, to a great player. I was amazed. Sorry to keep going back to this rabbit hole thing. Right. I'd never heard the name Frank Marciano. Yeah. Marciano. Yeah. Marciano. I never heard the name as I'm reading the book. I took a break at break and I was reading about one of the NBA uh, draft guys. And he, it turns out he played with, you know, he's in that Bay area, um, that league or that, that right. compound or whatever you want to call it that Frank runs. And so all of a sudden I'm reading about him and his incredible ways. And then there's a whole chapter, at least that you write, talk to me about Hell's Trainer <laughs> yeah. and, and just his, uh, how you knew him and just his, his methods. Sure. Yeah. Frank was a family friend of ours from New Jersey and he moved out to the Bay area when I got out to Stanford and mm -hmm. he has trained people for the military and very extreme uh, methods of training, but he'll, he'll push you as far as you're willing to go. Uh -huh. but, but he the genius of frank is that but he'll pull you back at the right times too and he did that with me and he was always telling he came to my games at stanford and he he was always telling me work out with me you know see what you could be doing uh -huh. with your body and you know i played on the number one team in the country my sophomore year at stanford so i was like you know frank we're doing all right here yeah, but yeah, yeah. i i had a, a hard personal year as you know from the book and I needed something, you know, I, I wanted it so bad. I was so motivated. And mm -hmm. Frank and I every day, all day in, the, in one summer, we just, you know, I worked out with him sprinting sand hills and yeah. carrying buckets of sand and pulling sled, like just doing some really, really extreme stuff. But he, I, I write in the book, like his methods were as extreme as my motivation, you know, uh -huh. something, something along those lines. And so yeah. He got me there. Listen, I went from averaging 3.4 points per game to 18 points per game. I was the most improved player in the whole country and in the history of the Stanford basketball program. So I, I applied myself. You know, part of it was my opportunity. Part of it was my drive. But also, Frank was a big part of it. He he mm -hmm. he got me there. And so I owe him a lot. 
I know that you played at some of the highest levels and, you know, you tried out for the Knicks and you're only seven, eight years away from when you played pro ball and you're young and in great shape, but, you know, but, you know, especially with having kids and all that and how tired we get, do you ever just look back? And I was never again at the level of you, but I look back at some of the tryout or some of the workouts we had and I'm like, how did we ever do that? Yes. Right? <laughs> oh, a hundred percent. And it's certainly, if you read the book, you know, some of the things I did with Frank, a hundred percent, but yeah, I actually don't think the human body is built to do some of those things. But uh, when you're, you know, when you love a, a game and you're motivated and you want to achieve things, you'll push yourself hard. And it's like, because I'm a big guy, right? I'm six foot six. And mm -hmm. so you have to have some physical things, you know, it helps it as a basketball player. Mm -hmm. But the truth is that it's about how big your heart is, mm -hmm. you know, and that, that really matters a lot more, you know, and you could be six feet tall, you'd be seven feet tall, but mm -hmm. sports is about heart. It really is. And so uh, that, you know, when you, when you want it, when your heart's into it, you'll, you'll push yourself pretty hard. Well, so how long till you get your two sons out there with Frank? <laughs> with Frank? Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. Don't hold your breath. Uh, listen, actually, if they're, if they love the game and they okay. want to experience it, you know, Frank, it, most importantly, it's always safe and controlled and, yes. and thoughtful, right? We're not doing anything you know dangerous. So if they wanted, and, and there is something to be said about pushing yourself that hard because mm -hmm. it actually helps me in my professional life in business because I um, know that I know what I've been through and I know what I've been willing to do mm -hmm. you know and I know that inside of me I have I have something that allows me to go very hard and to push very hard right so there's a, a level of confidence that in, in a lot of aspects that comes from pushing yourself to that level so I do believe it, it's valuable and it has to be done safely which it is with Frank sure what a character, huh? He doesn't like to be on, on camera and everything like that. <laughs> that's Frank. He will black his character. face out like, like that, that's Frank. There's only one of him. But what I got from it, too, is, is a great guy, very charitable, very philanthropic and, yeah. uh, you know, really helps so many people. True. He, he's a great guy. He's, and he's a good friend. Like he's fun. We funny. We have we had a good time together. Yeah. And so it was all everything was always in good spirit, right? You hear about like a drill sergeant type uh -huh. person that's pushing you really hard. Sure. You could think like, like, is that an abusive thing? Like how hard? But uh -huh. it was always with smiles. We're all we're <laughs> laughing. But hey, it was very matter of fact, like you want to be great? Push, yeah. just right. push, go. You know, and I, and I read in the book, I would curse at him. I would call him <laughs> names that you shouldn't call your friends. But I would do it and he would always and he would always tell me see he you know he calls men sir because uh -huh. see sir you didn't think you could do it now you know so you uh -huh. do you know you, you just it's like incremental progress right right and it's all mental it's really his training is actually more mental than physical uh-huh uh, so th there's something very very interesting about his methods because it is it's just a mental progression of you silencing the voice in your head that tells you you can't do things uh-huh i was i was lucky enough to go to a nike coaches clinic five, six years ago. And Bob Huggins, who, you know, is probably the opposite of like the, Hey, how you doing? He's a screamer. Yeah. He's a yeller. But I was always struck by how he would talk about like discipline would be like very objective. It would be like the, the recumbent bike or whatever you want to call it, you know, the exercise bike. And it'd be yeah. like, all right, go, you know, at this level for this many minutes. And I thought that was so interesting, right? Because, you know, as a coach, you're always like, okay, how do I punish? Is it basketball, you know, for, is it basketball centric? Is it punishing just for the sake of punishing? And, but it was just so objective, like go over there, do that. You know, he didn't have to scream and yell. He didn't have to interrupt the rest of the practice too, you know? Yeah. Everyone, you know, coaches have different methods, but it's, it's really important. And I always found that the coaches I played for, you know, players can sense like fairness, 
Right. right. And so I think if, if you if there are clear boundaries and you know that you did something that wasn't within those boundaries and then there's there's clear, uh, you know, there's consequences to that. I think that sure. that's just fair. Sure. And I hope Coach Huggins takes a break from coaching, man. He needs to he needs to relax. He's and been at it for a long time. Right? <laughs> so with with um, with, you know, Hell's Trainer and, and your absolute motivation, you had like you talked about, you were an incredibly improved player. And it wasn't like you were playing for some small school. You were playing for Stanford, which was, you know, very high in the rankings. And unfortunately, you got, instead of the sir from uh, Hell's Trainer, you got the dude. And that was when you got injured, right? That's right. What, what I mean, I've, I, I ruptured my Achilles many years after I was playing, you know, competitively. And I just think about how much, I don't know, despair there was and all that. What was that? I mean, how do you describe that? Like, I mean, you did it great in the book, but how do you describe that? Like the highs and the lows of that injury? Yeah. So, and that's, a, that's what the book is. Right. And, and you notice my chapter, my chapter titles are competing interests separate. Mm -hmm. And that's intentional because life is joy and pain and tragedy and triumph. And those things exist alongside each other. And my grandma is the best example of that. You know, she survived the Holocaust. Her family was killed. She lost a son, but she's the first one to tell a joke and to laugh and to mm -hmm. love. And that's what life is. We cry, we laugh. Right. And so my, our family's journey has certainly been that way. My basketball career was that way where, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm really low, then I'm on top of the world, you know, it's, it's, and then I'm not anymore. And so I was having the storybook junior year at Stanford where I was the second leading scorer in the Pac-10 conference. I was projected as a potential late first round pick in the NBA draft, right? My dreams were coming true. I was having a great game at home against Cal and on national television with Tiger Woods, who you mentioned before, yeah. uh, sitting courtside, I tore my ACL. You know, and my grandmother was sitting 20 feet away from where I got hurt because she came to every home game I played. And so mm. I panicked at first, of course, and it was very dramatic. And I finally kind of came to my senses. I realized she was next to me kneeling down, rubbing my head. Jeez. Right. And so it was it was it was a hard thing to go through because basketball meant so much to me. And this whole story tells you why. Right. Mm -hmm. Just fighting, fighting for for generations, you know, and so that injury was so crushing. And it's interesting because my grandmother survived the Holocaust. You can't, you can't compare a knee injury to that. And people sometimes ask me, you know, what was your grandma's reaction? Because, you know, nothing, your disappointment can never live up to what she went through. But she, even to this day would tell you, don't, I don't want to talk about the injury. Oh. That, you know, she's the one who made space because this was my life. And this was, mm -hmm. this was my hurt at the time. And so mm -hmm. she made a lot of space for me to mourn it, but also gave me the motivation and the inspiration to, keep moving, you know, work hard, stay positive, because she's been through worse, and she's mm -hmm. gone through it. And so I had that, that role model. Uh, I'll tell you one thing, I'll compliment you, Pete, because you mentioned that Frank didn't call me, sir, he called he said, dude, because yeah. Frank, when as they were kind of carrying me off the court, he leaned over the railing, and he said, dude, is it your ankle, it happened to be my knee. But that was an intentional thing I did in the book, because he always called me, sir. Yeah. So it's always yeah. sir, 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 sir. Right. But in that moment, and this is how it happened, he just he happened to call me dude mm -hmm. and like it was because it was so every like everything had been turned off its axis you know i the injury was so it was hard for him too because we were in it together we we worked sure. together and he believed in me because mm -hmm. i was i had such a poor sophomore year i write i was probably the worst player in the conference no one would have taken me and here i am eight months later i'm one of the best players in the country at my position right and he believed in me so it was something we did together so he said like dude right and it, it yeah. kind of shows you how how much things had changed at that moment. Right. 
so so did your grandma like leap over the stands like how did she do it how did she get down there <laughs> that's a good question she she just descended some some stairs okay. some okay. bleachers so it wasn't like a it wasn't a superwoman act, although she is superwoman. She was in her seventies uh, at the time, but uh, no, she just kind of hustled down the stairs, got on the court. The, the, yeah. the security people—they knew her because she was at every game. They didn't stop her. She, she just, she was there with me. I mean, you know, Frank could have a whole book written about him. I mean, there's so many. I mean, just the Buddy Hackett chapter alone could could be its own book or its own movie, right? I, I know him from my dad would always show me the. Uh, it's a mad, mad world. I don't know if you ever seen that movie. Yeah, I don't. Right? I haven't seen it, but I've heard of it. Yeah, right. So you know, again, got me down the 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 Wikipedia rabbit hole. But tell us about Buddy Hackett, the amazing comedian actor, and how he had such an important role in your family story. Yeah, you know, throughout the book, you see acts of kindness, and my grandma has everything you would need to survive the Holocaust. She has a will to live. She's smart. She's savvy. She's disciplined. Mm -hmm. But she's the first to say you needed luck and you needed help. Mm -hmm. And she had both those things. And she, you know, you'll read throughout the book, the the soldier who gave her a piece of bread, right. one per, someone gave her an extra pair of pants, someone gave her a kiss on the cheek, right? There were so many mm -hmm. acts of kindness that kept her going at that time. What Buddy Hackett did for my family is, is the ultimate example of that, where my grandparents you know, spent a decade under communism, brutality, not being, a, you know, you can't have anything, you work for the government, there's no freedom. They had friends who were jailed, tortured or killed for having money in their possession. Uh, my grandparents, right, they're Holocaust survivors, they had chutzpah, they, you know, they were fighters. And so they saved up quite a bit of money transacting on the black market. They had about $1,000 worth of Romanian money and 4,000 American dollars. And as you know, from the book, you know, when they left Romania, they fled as refugees, they weren't able to bring anything of value out of the country, but they said, we're getting our money out. Uh, and so they got every cent of their money out. The and both stories are really incredible. The, how they got the Romanian yeah. is incredible because that was my grandfather's plan and it worked. And, you know, people can read the book for that one. It's, mm -hmm. it's just, you know, that one is very cool too. But then the American dollars, which were so dangerous, my grandma had an idea. You know, her cousin was a, who was also a Holocaust survivor, lived in Budapest and was a production assistant on a movie set. And he was a he was a translator for the movie's biggest star, Buddy Hackett. And so <laughs> she said, it would, if he would agree to take our money out, we have a chance. And my cousin asked, approached Buddy Hackett and asked him, and he didn't hesitate. He was a Jew from Brooklyn. He said, if you can get the money from Romania to Hungary, I'll take it out for you. And as you know, from the book, my grandmother, you know, sewed a false bottom in a suitcase and it was very dangerous to transport it. But Buddy Hackett, got the money, he took it out, he sent it to my great uncle in the Bronx, and it was that money that my family had to start building a life when they got to America. And you know, you fast forward 20 years, once my grandparents had made good in this country, they saw Buddy Hackett perform in Las Vegas. They had never met. He just yeah, performed an act, right, of, right, he right, right. an act of kindness. And she told this story, my grandma did at dinner after the show, and one of her friends excused himself from the table, talked his way into Buddy Hackett's hotel suite and told him, those Holocaust survivors you helped, they're here. And he said, bring them up, right? So my grandparents got to spend the, the evening uh, with Buddy Hackett in his hotel suite. Buddy Hackett knew of my dad because my dad was a star basketball player for the New York Knicks, right? So and they said, hey, it was that little kid who, you know, that money helped him and his family start their life. So wow. it's sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. And that, that story is a great example. Oh, my gosh. The, the next chapter in the book is 
the mile as you recover from your injury about how the mile was like your your crucible right like um you know how your teammates didn't even know that you were going to run how important was that one mile yeah it was so important to me because every year in the fall when we got back as a team at stanford we ran a mile race mm -hmm. and it was it was the it was highly competitive right it was like right. who's ready you know who's going to show what they're made of and so i i won the mile race at my junior year and that was kind of my introduction to saying like, hey, i'm here and then i had this great year where i was first team all pack 10. i hurt my knee and it was that night that i the day i hurt my knee frank me frank and my grandmother had dinner and frank said to me hey when's your mile race how long is it from now and i said it's, it's eight months from now he goes okay you're gonna win it and i laughed it off i said frank i'm not you know i i'm gonna have to surgery and relearn to walk how yeah, can yeah. i possibly and this is stanford these are elite athletes he said sir you're going to win that race, you know? And so that, that kind of became my North star and I just was working, you know, I was, I was ruthlessly disciplined with my knee, you know, anything I could do to, to improve, to progress. I did it. I rehabbed so hard. And when that mile race came around again, my teammates hadn't seen me all summer. They didn't even know if I could run and they didn't even know if I was going to run the race. And I just kind of showed up at the track. <laughs> I already knew what was going to happen because I had run a practice mile about a week before and it was That's a right. pretty good time. Yeah. And uh, with a knee brace on, I won it, you know, and it was five seconds slower than I had run the, the year prior. And so that was a big moment for me. And I write in the book, everyone's triumph looks different, right? So I didn't survive the Holocaust and I wasn't this rose that grew from concrete like my dad was, but it was kind of my way of showing I had something inside of me as well, right? Yeah. Listen, I, I struggled on the court that year, physically, mentally. So it wasn't that just I won the mile and then it was all good. Like the, yeah. the injury was a very hard thing to, to overcome. And I certainly struggled on the court, but I, I proved a lot. I proved a lot with that, you know, and I was very proud of that. I, I remember like being with the physical therapist after, you know, again, having the, the ruptured Achilles tendon. And it was like, I don't know how I can even walk. Like, it doesn't make sense logically that that foot's going to walk, right? And the way that you talk about all the, what, tens of not hundreds of hours that you put in just to rehabbing was amazing. Oh, many hundreds, man. I'm telling you, like, yeah, it was, it was intense. You know, my trainer from Stanford and I, we, again, it, and I worked out with Frank too, after, after I got in the portion of recovery done, but yeah. my trainer at Stanford and I, we were just together all summer. I didn't go yeah. home. My family took this like two week family vacation. I met them for four days and I went right back to campus. You know, I was, I was obsessed, you know, and part of that was this drive to make good on this big family story and, mm -hmm. and everything like that. And so, yeah, it's, it's grueling injuries are the worst part of sports. And I think you just have to, it's a work really hard. You have to attack, attack that process, but you also have to stay hopeful and stay positive. And it was through my grandmother, my dad, that story that I kind of had the, the inspiration, the motivation to do that. Mm -hmm. So the next chapter goes back to, you know, your, your father and growing up and well, and, and the family just, just moving over. And it was within six, seven months that Lutzi, who again was just, the king was so good looking, was so charismatic, you know, was um, was diagnosed with leukemia and just the, the absolute tragedy of that death. I wonder how much of your interviews with your dad were you able to get information about your uncle or did you already know a lot of it? I guess more so like your father's connection to his brother. So as you know, that's not something he talks about. That's how painful it is. And I, and again, my book, By the Grace of the Game, it was after that where my dad went to the playgrounds in New York City to make friends, learn English, to right. heal from that. And he found the game, right? And so it's not something he talks about. But for the interview process, I told him, hey, we need to, we need to talk about it. And he did. 
mm-hmm. you know, and he, and it was hard for both of us, but I, I learned, I learned a lot. And, and my grandmother as well, you know, we, we just talked about it and she told me about the day he passed, you know, which I read about in the book. I never knew, I never knew what happened, you know, what, what, and, and she, she told me and my dad told me what he remembered and I write the scene and it's very real. It's like, you're there. And that's really sad because from all the tragedy my family went through with the Holocaust and other things, that's the biggest one, right? For my grandparents to survive what they survived, to have a chance at a better life in America and then to lose their oldest son. And for my dad to lose his brother, you know, it's a hole that can't be filled. And so it's, yeah, it's just, it's a terrible tragedy. And I don't think my dad would have flown so far so fast with basketball had he not been moving away from all this tragedy, not only with the war right. and also with his brother. Right. So, so, you know, your, your parents really became workaholic. Well, they already were. I mean, they were workaholics, right? I'm sorry, your grandparents were workaholics um, in the, in the wake of their son's death. Like you talked about your dad became just obsessed with hoops. Um, but one of the things you do so well in the book is you make your grandma, who's obviously a, a saint and a great person, but you make her a, a three-dimensional person. And where later on, I think it was maybe even 10 or 15 years later, but she had a heart attack basically, right? Because, she, she because how do you, as a mother, how do you, how do you possibly deal with you know, your son's death like that? That's right. And so my grandma is 97. She outlived, there were 10 siblings. And for five of them, unfortunately, were killed in the war, but she's outlived all of her siblings by more than 30 years, Whoa. right? So that's her longevity. She's 97, doing amazing. Mm. She had a heart attack in her 50s, yeah. right? And, and, I, and I asked her, why do you think that happened? Like what? And she said, I lost my son, mm. you know? And, and so that's, that's, it's just a, there's so much sorrow in that. And, but there's also, there's also hope in that because you see this incredibly loving, happy, spirited 97 year old woman, mm-hmm. if she can be the type of person she is today with all that she's gone through, there's hope for all of us. Yeah. So, you know, you start to chart more of like your, your dad just becoming big and getting the, knowing the language better and just becoming just a baller right you know again an outlet a beautiful game new york city being the mecca of basketball and it was one day when his parents were finally able to come see him play and they were like whoa this guy yeah right? <laughs> <laughs> just kind of like getting, getting the immigrant mentality they were working so hard they weren't they of course loved their son very much but weren't able to see him um what did your grandma tell you about like seeing him play for the first time yeah it's an incredible story because my dad's games were in the early afternoon and my grandparents would have had to close their fabric store to watch him play and as you know immigrants holocaust survivors trying to build a life they'd never close the store and so they got a call from his coach that said one day at the store i said mr mrs grunfeld you have to see your son play Mm -hmm. you know so they went the following week they closed their store to go to a game but not quite early enough you know they wanted to continue (laughs) to continue to work uh and so once they got to the gym it was closed and and the usher at the door said hey the, the game had already started he yeah. said hey jim's full we can't let you in and my grandfather his their english wasn't very good he said you know we're guests of guests of coach parents of player he said the guy at the door said hey there's nothing we can do and for whatever reason my grandma said you know our son is ernie grunfeld she didn't even know what that meant she just said it and the guy said well why didn't you say that <laughs> and he you know door swung open and they brought them in the gym and you know, they looked around and my grandma still tells this story. My grandfather in Hungarian said to her kind of under his breath, well, if he's so good, why isn't he playing? Mm-hmm. And my grandma grabbed him and she said, look right there, that's Ernie. You know, he was in the middle of the court, but uh, my grandpa couldn't recognize him. And the symbolism of that, you know, the, the transformation. 
he, he had never seen him in a position of power and, you know, and, and things had changed. And my grandpa used to make my dad come to their fabric store to work. And he told him after that game, yeah. you never come again. You just, you know, you just take care of your basketball. We'll do the rest. And a year later, he was an, an All-American, one of the most highly recruited players in the country. He became a, a New York City basketball legend, and it happened that fast. Oh, my gosh. Um, one of the chapters in that, in that same area of the book is that you had a chance. I believe your first, your first overseas, right, was, was Germany, which obviously yep. has, you know, you felt like, oh, my gosh, should I even think about it? Should I, you know, so you told your grandma and just shows about how open of a spirit she had that said, yeah, good for you, right? Yeah, I read in the book, I'm probably the only professional basketball player who had to call his grandmother to ask permission to sign his first pro contract, which is true. My agent said, hey, great offer for you, for, you know, to start your first year, you know, first league Germany. And I, I didn't even listen after that. I said, I interrupted him. I said, hey, let me call you back. I have to call yeah. my grandma. You know, and I told her and I thought it, it might be a problem. And I'll never forget what she said. She said, sons are not responsible for the sins of their fathers. Wow. Right. Which is a commentary of her perspective. She said, you should, you know, you can't blame this generation of Germans for what that generation did. You should go. Mm learn the culture, have a good experience. And that's what I did. And so she's, you know, she's one of a kind in so many ways. Oh my God. You know, with, with some success, definitely a success playing overseas, you had a chance to be back in uh, Madison Square Garden wearing a Knicks jersey as a player. Um, what was that like to be in the training camp with them? Yeah, it was great. It, but I read in the book, I wasn't as nostalgic about it as maybe I should have been because I just wanted to make it to the NBA. And I'd had a great year overseas. I played really well in this mini camp with the Knicks. It got me a training camp invite. I was playing well in training camp. Mm -hmm. I was just obsessed with making it to the NBA. The fact that it happened to be the Knicks, right? The team that my dad played for and was the general manager of where I was growing up. That was nice, but I just wanted to make it, you know? So I wish I would have been able to appreciate it a little bit more. But looking yeah. back, it was incredible, right? I grew up worshiping those guys. And for me to be able to put that jersey over my shoulders was really, really special. Who was like the who was like the best player you played against either in that camp or just even in your college career, like maybe a future NBA? Like who were one or two, like just the hardest players you had to play against? Well, I mean, I played against LeBron James in high school. And Not so, sad. you know, and, and that, I mean, that, let's stop right there. Right? It doesn't get, uh, I, you know, I've played against some really, really great players in at every level. Uh, you know, I remember even even if it's in pickup games, right? I remember playing pickup against Dwayne Wade when he was in college, and or actually he had just he had, he was in the NBA, but he had come back to play, and I was like, like that's a whole different thing, right? Uh, like, uh, yeah, I and certainly you know when I was in college, there were there were great players in the in the Pac-10, you know, guys who would go on to be NBA All Stars. Mm -hmm. uh, Brandon Roy is a good example, someone oh, who was yeah, my yeah. year at the University of Washington, who was just you know would become an All Star. Uh, for the for the Blazers, you know, great players at UCLA and Arizona. Uh, there's a player at Arizona, you know, well, Andre Iguodala, right, who was finals MVP was my year at Arizona. But there was a guy a year older than him named Salim Stoudemire. Oh, yeah, who was uh, and he was an NBA player, but I mean, just impossible to guard. There was uh, there were so many, you know, Nate Robinson was another player from Washington, uh -huh. who I also played with with the Knicks, a friend of mine who was uh, yeah. just an incredible dynamic player. Uh, yeah, there, there's just a lot of really great players over sure. the years. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, Salim Stoddard, I definitely remember that name. Incredible. Right. So towards the end of the book, you, you, you're talking about your dad's triumphs um, as a player. Team USA, I mean, amazing, like you, you said many times, you know, just your family's story. And for him to be representing the USA in 1976, um, that was in Montreal, is that right? That's right. Right. 
and you know even and then just going into the end of his career now as a as a tortured sacramento kings fan it was uh-huh. interesting to see that he played for the Can- kansas city kings or royals I guess. that's right yeah right? kansas city kings and there too but just talking about his career and his connections with uh with bernard king you know ernie and bernie i definitely want to see that 2013 uh, documentary is it, is it 30 for 30 yeah, it's a 30 for 30 called Bernie and Ernie. So, you know, my dad and Bernard King are one of the greatest duos in college basketball history, yeah. both from New York City, mm-hmm. right? Bernard's a, a black man from Brooklyn. My dad's this you know, white immigrant from Queens. They went to the University of Tennessee and they became legends. I mean, they each averaged more than 25 points per game together. Uh-huh. I, you know, Bernard carried that for, forward to the NBA, my role player in the NBA. But they, those guys, you know, they have this incredible history. Yeah, the, the 30 for 30 is great. You know, from the book, there's really interesting things about it. And what's so cool, it, it really, it's, it's, it really tracks with the message and the theme of the whole book, mm-hmm. which is basketball being a connector and, and bringing people together, right? Bernard and my dad are from the same city, but for, they're from much different places. But basketball made them really brothers in a sense. And they still talk every month. Bernard texted me to tell me how proud of me he was for the book. You know, I call him uh, Uncle B. And so mm-hmm. it's just it, their their connection then and even to this day is really special. Amazing. The New York to Tennessee to playing on Knicks together, right? For yeah, and Bernard, we lived in the same town. So my dad and Bernard would drive to the games together. I would come home you know, where, and see Bernard in our kitchen, you know, and, and listen, <laughs> Bernard King led the NBA in scoring. Yes. You know, 1984, like this is one of the great, great scores in, in the history of the NBA. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's really cool. He's one of those guys, that I think, you know, I, I wasn't quite old enough to, to see him play in his prime. And, you know, maybe the video is not out there. I just I feel like I've, I just hear the stories about how just much of an incredible player he was. Oh, yeah. My dad still says like he was the only guy who he ever played with or really even against who was genuinely feared. He yeah. said people were scared to play. Even in the NBA, people were scared to play because mm-hmm. he was just so punishing and ferocious. And yeah, he's, he's one of one of the all time greats. I think even you know even with a couple years at the end, obviously where your your points per game go down, I think he averaged. I think his career twenty five point seven, twenty five point nine. I mean, what an amazing player! Wow, scoring machine. Yeah, towards the very end of the book, um, you talk about the end of your career, and. I, I have a lot of I have a lot of issues for sure with with Kobe Bryant and that's whatever. But towards the end of his career, I really saw him like stop being such a like actually be kind of like self-deprecating. Right. I mean, he wasn't very good at the end of his career. Yeah. Right. I mean, definitely. I mean, compared to him, right. His injury right. got him way down all that. And you um, you know, you were still doing very well. But you talked about how like towards the end of your career it was more about perspective. That's what I'm getting at with Kobe, where he could laugh at himself. And, you know, you were still doing well. But, you know, with injuries and just, you know, you weren't quite the same player, but you just talked about like your perspective change. You met your wife. Yeah. You, you were amazed. You know, you're able to play in Israel and you'd be able to see the world. And I just appreciate that, that you're like, hey, basketball is not the end all be all. It can't be, you know, it can't right. be. And, and it was it was a hard journey. It was a deep journey. But mm-hmm. I think meeting my wife was a, was a huge part of that kind of allowing me to get that perspective. And I didn't have mm-hmm. kids at the time. I do now. Certainly, if I would have kids, I would have I would have known that right away. Right. Because that, <laughs> that certainly changes everything. But yeah. that was my my journey. And by the end of my career, I was, you know, yeah, I wasn't the same player. My heart wasn't in it as much. Right. And I kind of step back and just say, this is what it was. This is what it is now. This is what it'll always be. You know, because basketball mm-hmm. always have a special place in my heart. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I was a. I became a lot more reflective towards the end there. Very cool. Very cool. Do you still play a little bit now? 
occasionally you know i'll play i'll play once in a while with a group of guys who i like and uh you know it's it's competitive but not too competitive right my my main goal is just not to get hurt and uh you know you have that you have that competitiveness is all will always be inside me right once you Uh, go to at that level and you you push to that level there's always a a a switch and I'm fine not turning that switch on, right? I don't want to pr- have to prove anything. I don't want to go at anyone. I want to enjoy the game. One of the best things about basketball is it's such a social game. Communication, cooperation, you ha- you know, you're solving problems together. You're collaborating. Mm-hmm. I love that part of it. I love the social experiment of basketball. And so okay. I just want to play and enjoy it with good people. And it's fun to be a little competitive, right? Because right. you, 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 you do want to go at it a little, but I, I want to keep that switch turned off. <laughs> As, as I've gotten older, you know, you, you see the players, everyone starts to become a three-point shooter, right? No one wants to go in the, in the, in the key and all that. You're obviously bigger, but you were like a slashing point guard, a slashing shooting guard and all that. Like, do you still take it to the, to the rack or are you like hitting, hitting three, like shooting threes? You know, I, I do a lot off the ball. I cut <laughs> mid-range floaters. Okay. So I want to say like I attack the basket, but there's no attack to it. It's like I kind of <laughs> meander to the basket, you know? <laughs> uh, you know, I wish I were a better, more consistent shooter. I'm a good shooter. And, and, and sometimes right. I will just kind of hang out and, and let it fly. And yeah. sometimes that works for me. But I was always just kind of an in-between guy where I had mid-range and I would, you know, offensive rebound, get things mm-hmm. in transition. I try to do those things. But, yeah, again, I, I hesitate to use the word attack because if that is what an attack is, then uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just so embarrassed at the amount of shot fakes I do. Like, I, you know, I used to be able to get a rebound and just go straight back up. Now I'm just like, you know, inside him. No, you got to gather. <laughs> you got to gather. That's the word. That's the, yeah. word. the book ends. Um, so, you know, I, I say emotionally, the writing is not like over the top, but it's incredibly, you know, it's emotional about, you know, just grandma about how well she's doing in recent years. She's still cooking. She's still creating. You talked about that. Um, help me with the, the word. Um, Ronsitude. Is that the one that's like, the whole meal, like the whole. Oh, Ebed. <laughs> yes. Ebed. Right. Which is like yeah. a, like a five course meal or 10 course meal kind of thing that she's right. still doing right in recent years. Um, and obviously, you know, just like you talk about the love and her sense of humor and the legacy she's left for you. Um, and then it ends with, you know, with this, your son, how old is your son now? Solomon. Uh, he's three. He's three. Right. So him just being born and him as a symbol of that legacy how important basketball has been to your family. And obviously there's so much of the past, but it's still cool. Like looking into the future as well. And just about how much basketball will continue to give your family. I wonder, did that come last in writing the book or was that something that like kind of came to your mind? Like, like you knew the end before you got to the end. I generally, you know, I tried to tell a, an honest, true story, right? So I just wanted to reflect the reality of the situation the reality of my family story is that it carries on, mm-hmm. right? So that, so that is the it natural. It has to carry on, right? It has to carry on. Right. I mean, that's, a, that's the book. It lives in the book, but even without it, right? You tell stories, you're, you, you inherit what your loved ones have been through. And so mm-hmm. I just wanted to tell an honest story. And that's, that's where, it, where it ends with the next generation. Now, I, my wife and I got pregnant. We had our son, right? So actually, when I finished my first draft of the book, my son hadn't been born yet, mm. but he, but we were pregnant with him. And I knew, I said, okay, this is the next, this is the next generation. Yeah. What I, all I just put into words, I put my heart into my family suffered and fought and persevered for generations. This all now exists in a book. 
mm-hmm. and it's his now, you know, and I knew like this, this person who comes into the world, this belongs to them. And so, you know, I remember saying like, our son was born on and I like kind of like did XXX because I didn't know the date he was going to be born. But uh, I knew I knew where where it was where it would go because that's that's the truth, right? This all belongs to him. Definitely. Again, the book is called By the Grace of the Game, The Holocaust, a Basketball Legacy and an Unprecedented American Dream. And like I said, I mean, there's 25 different stories that could have their own books just within this, <laughs> this book. And um, like we talk about just such a cool... I, I got to imagine you'd be so excited when your kids get to read the book. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I was just thinking that, and and you know, it'll probably be around age, you know, because it's you know, there's some there's some hard themes, but you know, you'll laugh, you'll cry. There's a lot of of things going on in the book, but yeah, for me to pass it to them, just to hand it to them, and mm-hmm. here, this is where you come from. You know, these are the these are the people who came before you. It's really special. Definitely. I mean, if you want just pure basketball, you're going to get it in the book. There's some great you know, descriptions of, of hoops and, and becoming coming in your own as players, you and your dad. There's obviously so much history. There's so much culture. There's so much, um, you know, history that obviously is not happy, but needs needs to be passed on, needs to be known. So congratulations on just a great accomplishment. Hey, thanks so much. man. It's, it's been great chatting with you about it. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. What a pleasure it's been today to speak to Dan Grunfeld and I need to wish him good luck with his, his writing and future projects. I'm looking forward to continuing to follow his career. Thank you for listening to episode 130. You can now subscribe to the podcast on Apple. You can leave a five-star review. You can ask for it by name using Alexa, find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and Amazon Music. You can follow me on Instagram where I'm at chills at will podcast or on Twitter where I'm at chills at will PO one. It's a passion project of mine, a DIY operation. I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look at an often ignored art form. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental. And the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour. And both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Dan, real quick, just uh, any contact information, social media that you'd like to share? I'm, you know, Twitter, Dan underscore Grunfeld. I'm on Facebook at Dan Grunfeld, Instagram, Dan.Grunfeld. I also have a book website, DanGrunfeld.com, where people can get in touch with me or contact me through the email there. I love engaging. I love chatting about this story. And I really do, I really do enjoy just connecting with folks who stories like this are meaningful to. So please, yeah, reach out. I'd love it. Awesome. Please tune in for episode 131 with this with Alice Elliott Dark, author of the, uh, the novels Fellowship Point and Think of England, and whose short story In the Gloaming was chosen by John Updike for inclusion in the best American short stories of the century and made into films by HBO and Trinity Playhouse. That episode will air on July 5th. For now, thanks again for listening. And I hope that these quarantine days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like Dan Grunfeld, whose work, like... By the grace of the game, the Holocaust, the basketball legacy, and unprecedented American dream give you chills at will. Mm-hmm.